You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So today, around the world, here is what's happening. The Ganges River is known as the holiest river of the Hindus, and it's flowing from the uh, Himalayan mountains. And today, thousands of Hindus submerge themselves into the river looking for healing. Already, a few times today, Muslims have faced Mecca to offer up prayer. Hospital rooms uh, have been filled with the joyful scream of thank you God for this new life and why God for this terrible diagnosis. The most famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer, will actually be prayed around a million times today. Monks will visit the sanctuary in the abbey three times today to offer up the daily office. Hasidic Jews will stand at the Jerusalem Wailing Wall, rocking back and forth praying. Folks across the world will join in worship services not dissimilar to this one and pray. Vigils will probably be held as an act of communal lament somewhere in the world where even those who do not believe come face to face with the question, is there a God, is he just, and does he hear my prayer? Death rows and back alleys will be filled with people speaking to God. Thousands of nuns pray the divine office together five times a day and then spend a few more hours talking to God through reading and silence. Under the bridge, you will find graffiti, and in that colorful art, you will often spot a handwritten note to God. This morning, some of you may have even knelt on your bedside or sat in your living room and said something to the creator of the world. Prayer is the open-handed response to something transcendent that supersedes country, language, culture, nationality, and worldview. And while there is a significant distinction in many of those examples of who the object of prayer is, it is impossible (laughs) to get away from the fact that praying is a human instinct. Because we all feel our limitations. We all desire transcendence. We all desire something because we realize the world is broken and we feel very powerless to fix it. And of course, we all want intimate relationship, the art of family where you are embraced. And so in moments of unspeakable grief, the only natural response is to cry to God. And in moments of unbelievable joy, sometimes the only rational response is to thank God. And in moments of sheer impossibility, the only appropriate response is to ask God. And in moments of sheer desperation, the only response is to reorient ourselves to God. The pages of Scripture have prayer dripping all over it. You can barely pick up a page and not see someone in the story being engaged by the author of the story. It is the whole premise The ethos of our entire faith is talking with God and listening to God. It is a relationship with God. It's where the story started. It's where the story ends. And even though we have corrupted the communication in between, God continues to rewire it and pursue us through the avenue of prayer. And two weeks ago, we started jotting down some notes, a a prayer guide of sorts, 
What is this year like for you, your family, your pains, your frustrations, your joys, your diagnosis, your neighbors, your lost friends, your burdens for other people? And I'm going to circle back at that at the end, but it is critical to get familiar with one another because carrying each other's burdens is what it means to embody the image that God has given us in the Bible, which is the family. But families do not merely react. They are, in fact, proactive, right? They do not just respond to crisis. They act in convictions, They cast vision for their children and for their children's children. They practice things over and over, so much so that behaviors become disciplines, disciplines create habits, and habits shape desires. And this is what the church does and has done for two millennia. But we are so accustomed to prayer not being a regular rhythm of our life. And it's because we have been fed a narrative. And that is that prayer is boring. What you will often hear, what I experienced as a kid and as a teenager, is that prayer is not entertaining. Even now, if you tell people, hey, we're going to have a prayer service, it is typically the least attended. For most of us that say that prayer is boring, it would be like us drinking a glass of wine from a thousand dollar bottle who has never tasted a sip of wine before and thinking, man, I don't taste much. Of course you don't taste much. You don't know what you're tasting. It, your response to a thousand dollar bottle of wine is, eh, it looks good. It doesn't taste awful. I think that is our response to prayer. What would a wine sommelier say to you? Your palate hasn't been trained. Our palate has not been trained to pray. We don't practice prayer, and therefore we're not experiencing anything of its power. But just like a sommelier who has drank thousands of glasses from thousands of bottles in thousands of vineyards... They can tell you the notes, the aroma, the fruit, the tang, the twist, and why. It's because they're trained. So I want us to not only pray reactively, i.e. carrying the burdens of each other, but also proactively. (laughs) I want to lay out a vision for our church over the next two years of the proactive prayers that I'm inviting us We are inviting you, God is inviting us, I believe, to lean into. And so we're going to start with Jesus. We're going to move to the church, the early church in Acts, and then we're going to end with us. So, Jesus, the greatest man who walked on earth was committed to the quiet place. In Matthew's account of Jesus' life, before we ever get any insight into his public profile, The curtain gets pulled back and we get a glimpse into his inner life where he fasted and he prayed for 40 days before anyone knew who he was. Before calling out each of the disciples, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. And after he sent out his disciples to do ministry, upon returning, we don't get record that he was congratulating them. but inviting them to retreat. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Code for, let's go away and pray. 
when his disciples had gone out two by two and could not cast out a demon and were wondering why. Why could we not cast it out? Jesus responds, because you have little faith. This kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. What does Jesus do when he receives word that one of his friends and predecessors, John the Baptist, is executed by Herod? Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when he was fawned over after performing miracle after miracle, Jesus did not seek fame but the secret place. But now even more the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And hours before he is falsely accused and wrongfully imprisoned and physically beaten, Jesus goes away to pray in the garden. And as he is dying, we hear his last words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, even feeling abandoned by the God who has allowed the crucifixion to happen, continues to go back to the place where he spent his entire ministry in the presence of God. Jesus loved the Father. He was in constant relationship with the Father in moments of silence, in a moment where he needed physical space and time away from the demands and noise of life, Jesus prayed. And in the climactic moments, right before he announces the kingdom of God is at hand, and in the dark night of the soul in the garden where he is pleading with God, there has to be another way, Jesus prays. It was not something distinct from the rest of his life. It was fuel for his entire life. Jesus is our substitute, praise God for that, but he is also our example. If the Son of God retreated regularly to seek the face of the Father and receive from the Father and be empowered back to be sent out by the Father, then why in the world do we think that we can accomplish so much with so little prayer? It is, it is as if we believe the most powerful thing we can do is the thing that we can do. But that was not the script that was written for the early church. Because it wasn't just that Jesus prayed and then left us without prayer. The early church took off precisely because of prayer. Jesus ascends into the heavens, and what does Luke record as the first response to this? The disciples actually go into the upper room, the place where they remember the meal that they shared, the bread that was broken, the cup that was drank, and it says this, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Jesus is gone, but his ministry is only beginning because now the church has been given the very presence of God in the person of the spirit. And we see this throwaway line in Acts three, where it says, now Peter and John we're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. At the hour of prayer, it was a set time appointed for the literal hungering of God. There are still many traditions that practice the hour of prayer. And for as much as we may have some theological differences, there is something unique and profound about a set time where everyone who is a part of a community puts their workings aside, their productivity 
and efficiency and effectiveness aside to sit at the feet of Jesus. The inspiration for our Friday prayer, a set time at 7 a.m. and noon, once a week to pray, this is where that comes from. And maybe you're thinking, we're not living in ancient Jerusalem. Our lives are different. We have more going on. And with as much grace and as much conviction as I can muster, if we are too busy to pray, we are merely too busy. Dane Orland says, I don't have time for prayer today. I'll pick it up tomorrow is the spiritual equivalent to I don't have time for eating today. I'll pick it up tomorrow. He goes on to say not praying because you are too tired or too discouraged is like skipping a meal because you are too hungry. It just does not compute. You don't skip meals because you're hungry. You eat. You don't ignore God because you're mad or upset or distraught or dejected. You wrestle with him. The early church's calendar revolved around set times where they sought the face of God. And if you turn over one page to Acts 4, you notice Peter and John are arrested because they were speaking the very politically subversive message that Jesus is Lord. Which is something that in every empire, in every sector, in every part of the world is a highly controversial topic, especially when it is lived out and embodied in holistic ways. And upon their being released from religious custody, this is part of the prayer that is prayed. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The last line is what gets me. Continue to speak with boldness. Upon being imprisoned and questioned and put on high alert as Jerusalem's most wanted, their prayer is, keep us bold, Lord. Continue reading in Acts and you see Peter, a Jew, in the city of Joppa one evening, decide to find a quiet place to talk to God. So he goes up to a rooftop. And now I imagine Peter looking up at the stars, talking with God over the next several hours. He would have a vision of non-kosher animals like reptiles and birds and God calling them clean. So Peter gets shook because before this, these unclean animals were not to be touched by Jewish people. But now God is drawing back the curtains for Peter and inviting him into a greater vision than just God as the God of the Hebrew people, but God as the God of all people, all people. So Peter, listening to the Spirit of God, goes downstairs at his house because a couple of men are looking for him. Now, three days prior to this, there was a man named Cornelius who was a non-Jew or a Gentile praying in his house around 3 p.m. in the city of Caesarea. Now, for context, this is the distance between Joppa and Caesarea. Um, it's pretty much the distance between here and Athens, Tennessee. It's like 40 miles, so it's not like here to North Hills. It's like a significant distance. So he's praying, uh, and he also gets a vision from God. 
And from the text, we can surmise that an angel appeared to Cornelius saying, your prayer has been heard, send for Peter. And so he did. And Peter shows up. Two men who've never met, who are both praying, meet. And this becomes the inciting event where the Spirit of God and the gospel of the kingdom break out among the Gentiles. The spread of the kingdom to the non-Jew world, i.e. us, was birthed by prayer. A few more chapters over, and the church at Antioch becomes one of the premier sending churches of the early church. And Paul and Barnabas are sent off to continue to expand the boundaries of the kingdom to cities far and wide. What was the prompting that sent them out? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So fasting and praying was a regular rhythm of the church. And then God speaks. <laughs> and so they continue to fast and pray to discern and confirm what they heard. And then they commissioned them. The missionary movement that led to churches that would plant churches and disciples that would make disciples and families form in the character of God and lost people coming to know Jesus literally was started in a prayer service. Flip over three chapters, skip a couple years. Paul and Barnabas have gone separate ways, but now Paul is joined by Silas and Timothy. They traveled to Philippi, finding there's no real synagogue in the city, which is where Jews would worship. So they went outside the city gate where there appeared to be a designated place for prayer. And at the time, Philippi did not seem to be occupied by a lot of Jews, but there was a Gentile woman. Her name was Lydia. From what we know of her, she was a well-to-do woman from a small town in Turkey who was knowledgeable about the production and sale of purple dye. That's all we got. Uh, she was a Greek, but she was what they would call a god-fearer, meaning she did not worship the pantheon of gods that were venerated in her hometown, but had investigated the Jewish claims that Yahweh is the one true God and she wanted to explore more. So when Paul and Silas show up, their lives intersect with the lives of a few women, Lydia being one of them. And at the place of prayer, Lydia's suspicions about the one true God become convictions that overwhelm her. And Luke says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And here is how the first church in Greece gets planted. And it all started because a few people from polar opposite worlds, Paul, a Jewish male from the tribe of Benjamin, and Lydia, a non-Jewish Turkish woman, meet on a grassy knoll on the edge of Philippi for the same purpose, to pray. And the very next scene is Paul and Silas being followed by a woman who is harassing them, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, but doing it in a antagonistic, sarcastic tone. And she did, did this for a few days, apparently, so much so that Paul gets just straight up annoyed with her and says to the spirit within her, I command you to come out. And it did. The problem was that this woman was a fortune teller and her bosses were so angry that her perceived power had been cast out of her that they drug Paul and Silas into the market square of Philippi and began to humiliate and assault them nearly to the point of death. So they get chained up to a cinder block jail, their feet fastened to the wall that can't move, that can't do much except talk. So they just start singing. 
hymns, psalms perhaps. The ones that maybe they even heard as children but didn't have much punch to them because they felt more rote and forced than they did profound and heartfelt. But now, now as they are sitting on a cold dirt floor, the reality starts to set in. The hymns have meaning. They have teeth to them. There's something to them when suffering hits that brings their heart back home to God. There's something to them that when the world seems upside down, because here they are proclaiming the message of God's healing for the world and realizing their message is not being received very well. But the words they put to memory as children began to take a new hold of their hearts. And with hands lifted and nothing but sheer desperation, they pray by singing. They don't have the Torah in front of them. They don't have the scrolls to reference. But they realize they are in good company because they are joining in the suffering of Jesus, counting it an honor. And so they experience authentic joy deeper than mere happiness rooted in something much more concrete. They weren't singing this hymn because it wasn't written yet. But using some creative imagination, can't you hear them singing something like, Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And that is what they do. They pray. And as they're praying and as they're singing, it says, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Which is astounding from a physical standpoint, such an earthquake that the chains literally fall off and such a profound picture of the spiritual life. The physical chains come off Paul and Silas. But the stronghold shackles of shame and sin come off the prison guards. And we see the guards' natural response is to bow down to Paul and Silas with a I am undone posture. And Paul just says, get up. We are not gods. But that posture is the posture Jesus has come for. And that day they rejoiced because they were counted in the kingdom of heaven. For they came to believe. And I could give you ten more examples of prayer. But for time's sake, just know that the book of Acts is littered with account after account after account of God, of the God of heaven meeting mortals on earth in and because of prayer. There are so many reasons we don't pray. But I believe that the root of it is actually a problematic paradigm that we have come to believe which has distanced our hearts from God in prayer. And it is this. This is the story that we have come to believe. Heaven is up high in the sky with angels on clouds. And our vision of hell is Dante's Inferno. Somewhere below the earth. And we're here on earth somewhere in between heaven and hell. The problem with this story is the Bible paints a very different depiction of this story. This is actually more like it. Joshua Butler came up with this image. He was a pastor in Arizona. And he has this quote tagged to it. God's agenda is to get the hell out of 
earth. In many ways, what we do experience because of the fall is hell on earth. And God has moved himself down to earth to cast it out. This does not take away the eternality of hell. But the story of the scripture is not us ascending into the sky. It is the image of God coming down to the dirt. And he did it in his son. And he has given us his spirit. And he is coming back again to renew the earth fully and finally. And prayer takes us into the throne room of God. And it propels us out into the mission of God, proclaiming and demonstrating his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. That is the Lord's Prayer. Which leads us to us. We live in a pragmatic age. We care about efficiency and effectiveness. We care about productivity. We like feeling accomplished. Tell me what to do. But that becomes a real drain on what it means to be a church that prays. If all we care about is pragmatism, we may do a lot. We probably will do a lot. (laughs) We just won't necessarily become the people God is calling us to be. Jesus' life on earth was marked by many obvious things, signs, wonders, miracles, teachings, holistic discipleship. But the basis and the bedrock of any of his ministry sprang up from and was built in the quiet, secret place of prayer. And so the next two years, I want to put in front of you four prayers. They're bold prayers. Some of them have numbers attached to them. And that will probably scare you because in full transparency, it terrifies me. But what terrifies me just a little bit more is sticking to the status quo of never asking God to do anything remarkable and never expecting God to surprise us. Much of the reason we don't pray bold prayers is because we have this underlying sense that if I pray something bold and it's not answered in the way I wanted or expected, my faith is going to crumble like a house of cards. So I keep my prayers vague enough (laughs) to never know if they're answered and ambiguous enough where I protect myself from disappointment if they're not. And that might be a safe way to pray. But it is dishonest at best and terribly paralyzing at worst. I want to be a church that actually wrestles with God. That contends for things that are happening in the world. That both enjoy God's presence believe God's promises, and seek to be a part of God's mission to dwell in and through his people to bring the kingdom to come. The language used at the end of Ephesians is the language of warfare. And in our current cultural moment, a lot of that language ends up demonizing the other side of whatever issue you're on. But the warfare language that Ephesians is talking about is to contend in a different space than merely the physical one. There is something else happening in the world. And prayer literally is the antidote.
So, here is the first prayer. Our prayer is to become a Jesus-centered community. And over the next two years, we are praying for ten people to come to radical faith in Jesus. Most of us are not in the business of evangelism for two reasons. One, we are surrounded by only believers. Our coworkers are believers, our families are believers, our neighbors are believers, our friends love Jesus. Which, let me say, is a great thing. It is wonderful to be surrounded by believers. But you're missing the story if you are only surrounded by only believers. For some of us, it's uncomfortable, it's uneasy, we don't feel like we can relate, or we have perhaps unintentionally insulated our lifestyles from those who don't live out the faith we hold. It's just easier not to deal with the mess of the world's problems as if they're not ours as well. But what I think is probably more true for the majority of people in this room is that we are paralyzed by one big fear. We caveat our way around how and why and where it's best to talk about Jesus and not talk about Jesus. And when we do talk about him, it feels like we're kind of doing PR for him, as if he's someone who needs all these different nuances because we fear him being misunderstood or misaligned. But let's be real. We actually fear we being misunderstood and we being misaligned and we being considered unintelligent or canceled or defriended or laughed at and I find myself, too, in this boat. All right? But it is all rooted in one word, and it is fear. It is the great motivator and driver to not do so many things in life, including speaking of the person to whom your life is all about. So many parables Jesus tells are of him chasing after and celebrating over the lost sheep, the lost coin, the wayward son, the kingdom of heaven throws parties for desperate sinners being welcomed home. And we have made it possible to follow Jesus without doing the deeper work of embodying Jesus. And part of that embodying, as difficult as it is in post-modern, western, namely secular society, is announcing that God has come into the world to love the world back to Him. The gospel is news. It is an announcement. The front page headlines that God has made a world out of love, that we have walked from that love, that he has pursued us in love after we stepped away, climaxing in God's arrival and life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension and ultimately redemption of the entire cosmos. That story is a really good story and actually, I think most of our neighbors don't know that story. They have a version. They have a version of the story. But it is not the gospel of the kingdom. It is something else. And they have said that is what Christianity is. And we get to come underneath that and say, actually, no. Let's start at the beginning. The God of triune love, let's go to the end. The God of triune love is inviting us to be with him who has been here from the beginning and he's in, made a family. He has made a family and he has said, you are wanted in this family. It's a scary prayer. Ten people. There ain't that many people in this room if you haven't noticed. But here's what I've learned. When you start praying for God to move and when you start praying for specific people 
you start to see the world differently and you start to see the people you are praying for differently. Each interaction becomes an invitation to engage more thoughtfully, be sensitive to where the Spirit might lead, and to be the pursuer inside the relationship. God is saying, follow me deeper into the relationship that I desire with this person. This is the basis of our faith. Jesus pursued us, but he's not pursuing only us. And this one may feel like probably the boldest prayer that we're going to pray, but it is the prayer. God grows his family and he grows it by the power of his spirit through the organism of his church. Second one, a justice-centered community. Over the next two years, we are praying that our church would intentionally invest in the lives of 25 kids who are considered at risk or on the margins of our community. Now, I know there is a really large elephant in the room. Yeah, Wes, you all stepped into foster care. (laughs) That's great. It's not for me. It's not for me. Let me just say two things. Number one is this. Maybe it's not for you. But you have to ask yourself, why not? And maybe you're not a home that takes on kids full time. Maybe you're a respite home for kids who need a 24 to 48 hour stay. Or maybe you're the pseudo aunts and uncles who provide relief to parents with kids in foster care semi-regularly. Or maybe... Just maybe you have never considered the fact that there are neglected kids who need to believe that there is a God who loves them and that God invites the body of Christ into that story of sheltering kids in the storm. And maybe you've never even thought that God might be wanting to do a healing work in you as you step into the healing work of redemptive parenting. Everyone here will not foster or adopt. Everyone here shouldn't do that. But everyone here is invited to ask the question, why not me? Because everyone here is invited to follow Jesus into the dark corners and desolate wastelands of our society and live the alternative story. And not, by the way, because you are here to act as some pseudo savior, but because you need the saving. I was at a conference years ago and I was, it was a... uh, director of a adoption agency who was speaking and he said something that I've never forgotten. He said a lot of people come to him talking about how the church is here to save the orphan because the call is to care for orphans and widows. But he said, I don't believe that to be the case. He said, I don't believe the church is called to save the orphans. I believe the orphans are knocking at the door and they are here to save the church. The call for justice inherently implies loving action toward vulnerable people. And children are not the only vulnerable people around, but they are certainly some of the most vulnerable. And if you don't sense the invitation by the Spirit toward fostering or adoption, how are you investing into the next generation right now? How are you giving your energy to children, potentially children, who have been so deeply wounded that the only story that is powerful enough to override the trauma narrative of their life is the story of healing grace? 
The story of God and his love for the world is the only story that is going to have staying power and transform people from being wounded to being wounded healers. And if the church is not willing to step into that, we have no ground to talk about justice whatsoever. We barely have ground to talk about sin. Now, maybe it's high school kids. Maybe it's big brothers, big sisters. Maybe it's the boys and girls club. Or just befriending some kids on your street and having a weekly kickball game. But to be a church that shields itself from the acute pain of injustice toward children is to shield ourselves from Jesus himself. Let the children come to me was not a piety saying from a cool teacher. Children had no agency in ancient Near Eastern culture. It is the opposite of the American culture, where children, for the most part, actually, especially in some sectors of the world, are esteemed to a level of ultimate decision-maker within the home. Children had no decision-making power. They barely were considered human beings. And when the people brought Jesus children, he placed his hands on them, brought them into himself, and the disciples rebuked the parents, saying, kids do not belong here. And in Mark's account, it says, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. There's only two or three times we get the message that Jesus is ticked off. And one of them is when the temple is getting abused as a place to prey on people in poverty. And the other is when children get neglected. Jesus says, quiet. It's actually exactly them who belong here. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, become like them. To be the people of God means to love mercy and to do justice, particularly in the realm of children. The third prayer is this, a confessional community. So we've been talking about this for a while, so I'm not going to spend too much time here other than to say it is one of the distinct markers of the authentic church. Being able to look someone in the eyes and confess our sin and believe that God is forgiving and that forgiveness gets tangibly felt through family. This prayer actually feels easy to pray and excruciatingly painful to walk out. How do we become a people that get comfortable and honest with who we are, that we shed the exterior and step into the light? Because the light only breaks in through the cracks. A truly confessional family will say something about a God who forgives and to not be open about who we are and what we wrestle with and where the pain points are in our life is to mirror back to the culture what they already are. They're all living in a false reality. And the only way we can become a counterculture is to live in a different type of reality, namely a confessional one. The way, the only way to taste grace authentically is to confess sin. If grace is the pardon extended to us that we do not deserve, we have to openly admit why we don't deserve it. Our perceived front that we have become experts at putting on will eat us alive. Step into the light. And we are quick to err in confession 
on the side of incessant criticism when people confess sin to us, and we were also quick to smooth over the rough edges of the community. But neither is the way we lean into confession. We offer forgiveness. We pray and we receive mercy. A confessional community is a messy community. There is nothing clean about getting yourself out there. But only messy ones actually experience grace. So over the next two years, you're praying for a church culture where it is a safe and regular practice to confess sin while not being a place to enable sin. And the last one is this. Over the next two years, we are praying that our church would regularly practice at, at a set time and space prayer throughout the week where they might go without something for the sake of intimacy with God and mission in the world. Here is what we are after in becoming a praying community. We are after hunger. It is not only the comfort of God's presence that draws us into intimacy with him, but his distance that lures us in. The gift that he gives us, it is so opposite in our brains, but the gift that he gives us is actually our dissatisfaction with him. The entire book of Psalms is just David and other psalmists writing out how much more they desire God. <laughs> not necessarily how much they are already satisfied with him, but how much they want him. The most practical example I can give is right now, if you are a sports fan, you know that in two weeks, college football kicks off. It's a great time of year. Um, the most wonderful time of the year, actually. Um, but the season is great. The season is great. However, however, these two weeks are actually like salt to a thirsty person. You actually crave it, the buildup for it, as much as you actually enjoy the season. That is actually how we, how we approach God. <laughs> like we, we, are, we desire God. We crave him. We long for him. The, the psalmist says, satisfy me with your love. But it is this longing for him that actually draws us into him. One author puts it this way. Our aching for God is the splinter in our shoe and the funeral that whispers in the shadows at every wedding. I do not want to pretend that our intimacy with God is going to feel like Washington, D.C. on the 4th of July. In fact, I imagine that to be the least of our experiences. I imagine it much more like hiking the Appalachian Trail. A commitment to the journey filled with peaks, wonders, small towns, miraculous sunrises, and days where you are exhausted, tired, depleted, and believe hiking this trail is a supreme waste of time. It is a commitment to do it, believing the promise that there is an end and also realizing the means are the end. You don't hike the AT merely because you are attempting a destination, but because you are committed to the journey. And what it does in you and what it does for you is a lot more profound than what you do for it. Our relationship with God is freeing and it's frustrating. It's fascination and it's failure. <laughs> it's, they're intertwined. It's a bit of a quandary. Perplexing and confusing, yet resolved to receive the gracious gift of an affectionate dad. Like a marriage in its fifth decade, it is not marked by an increased thrill of an emotional high, but a deepening of intensity in which two really have become one. 
So we fasted together last Lent, and we plan to do so again this year because there is something about giving up something that we might seek God with greater affection and intensity. For some of us, maybe it is food or alcohol or TV or social media or shopping or whatever, but it's in the discipline where we find delight. And it's, this is the journey we're on. So I pray I stand up here in 2024 and see a hungrier people. A people who both experience genuine commitment and, or I'm sorry, genuine contentment and wrestle with a holy discontent. I want to see people who have found themselves in the loving embrace of God and who feel a sense of restlessness, like a holy hunger. And one of the ways we're going to pray through these four prayers together is what we're calling our dwell nights. Um, which are not going to be like this right here, um, where I get up and give a sermon, but rather a time where there's a little bit of music and a lot of prayer. Um, and it's we're praying together, collectively, spontaneously, responding to the Spirit of God. How might, they, how might he be asking you to pray? What might God be inviting you more into more of this year? His presence, his world, his grace, his mission. He is in constant pursuit of you. And it's just every single moment is an opportunity for you to respond to the invitation. And my prayer is that you take seriously these four prayers over the next two years. So let's pray. Jesus, we, we honor you. And yet we are desperate for you. And we need you to move in us and among us. For your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven means for it to also come in us. Would you be so kind to hear our prayer? And would you be so kind to answer it? We know you love authenticity because you love grace. And we know you love us to hunger after you because you love to give us yeses. And we know that you love lost people because you found us. And we know that you are a God of justice. And the only way we're going to enact our faith seriously in the world is to reflect that justice. Go with us, Spirit of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.